You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider, Brandon Jaggers, Jeff Riggs, and me, C.C. Broadus. The Auxiliary Gate, big problem. Welcome to episode number 168 of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. CC brought us in a frigid and cold bluegrass state. In fact, there's no bluegrass growing right now, but I'm joined to help warm me up by Alan Schneider and Jeff Riggs. Alan, we'll start with you. Have you thawed out? Not yet. I, I, I despise cold weather. It's not in my contract to warm you up either. So um, if we have contracts, we should sign contracts. Uh, it is, it is well, rough. Speaking here. of contracts, <laughs> speaking, you know, speaking of contracts, we had to uh, negotiate a big one for this man and his beautiful beard. He had to actually uh, sign two separate contracts, one for him and one for the beard, and that's Jeff Riggs. Jeff, how's it going? It's going well. It's very true. You know, we have to insure the beard on its own, so it had to be two different contracts. So, so that makes Lloyd's, sense. But Lloyd's of London. We had to go to Lloyd's of London to ensure that beautiful beard. Like some rock stars private parts, That's exactly right? right. <laughs> like Brandon Jack. <laughs> yeah. The true rock star. Now, he's not with us right now, but I I'm 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 assuming he's putting the baby down. But we'll 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 talk to him later, hopefully. But uh let's uh let's get right into the into the uh into the show. And we want to talk about first, let's see what we want to talk about today. On this date, nearly 80, 94 years ago, January 15th, 1930, George Long passed away at the age of 76. Now, who was George Long, you may ask? Uh, guys, do you all remember the old Bashford Manor Mall on Bardstown Road? Of course oh, yeah. I do. I'm, I'm 53 years old. Of course I do. I used to hang out there a lot. <laughs> Okay, well, Bashford Manor Mall sits on a on the former site of Bashford Manor Stud, mm. which uh, is important in Kentucky Derby lore because Bashford Manor Stud turned out three Kentucky Derby winners: uh, Azra in 1892, Manuel, and perhaps that's Manuel. I'm not sure, but it's uh, in 1899, and then Sir Huon in 1906. All three of those Kentucky Derby winners were bred. At Bashford Manor Stud, and uh, there used to be a beautiful home there. Apparently, that was uh, built by a Louisville architect named Henry Whitestone, which was the name of his uh, ancestral home in Maryland. And it is also they shared the same name of uh, where his ancestors came from in England. So, uh, Bashford Manor Stud became Bashford Manor Mall, and now it's Walmart. Yeah, it's going to say now it's a Target <laughs> or Walmart or something there, and a tumbleweed and. Uh, the life we live, uh, and also there's the Bachelor Manor Stakes, right? It's been a an, annual two year old stakes at Churchill for since God knows when. It's been it's been yeah, it predates me I think, but uh, yeah, it's uh, so that yeah, there's there's your uh, little bit of history there. I think I, I have to credit John Saltzman on uh, Twitter or X as the, as the kiddos call it now, but uh, that's where that uh, info came from. I thought that was kind of fascinating. 
diving into the history of Bashford Manor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's talk about a, a, a two-year-old I saw on Saturday. And two-year-old, I'm kind of excited about uh, second start for Shug McGahee, Cortland Farm. And uh, this is a son of City of Light. Of course, his name is Conquest Warrior. They paid a million dollars for him at auction as a yearling. Uh, he made a second start, earned an 84 buyer. But you have to go back and watch the uh, the race. The horse had a horrible trip. He got pinched back at start. He was far back. Uh, Jose, Jose Ortiz rode. He rallied into the uh, into the pace and and kind of got stymied again uh, at the top of the stretch. And he probably made up five six lengths from the top of the stretch to the wire. Has huge strides. Ran down a, a nice Todd Pletcher, three-year-old first-time starter, and uh, this horse, uh, this horse has the looks of uh, something special. Now the question is, can he go farther than a mile? I mean, his his pedigree kind of hints that he could be uh, that could be his sweet spot. But this horse uh, uh, got a really interesting pedigree. His his mother's name is Tea Time, but she traces back to Althea. And I'm gonna that's our next trivia question. Do you guys remember Althea? I certainly do. I know Jeff, this might be before your time, but off the top of my head. I do not remember Althea, but I'll let you take it. Take it away. I want to say Althea was a Philly. Yes. And who was the favorite in, I want to say, the 82 Derby for Wayne Lucas. Uh, Maybe it's 82, and that's your, I want to say it's your Grotto del Sol beater. But am I close enough? Or was it 83, or how close am I? You know what? I was going to say 84. You might be right. This was uh, Wayne Lucas's first female, and she was born in '81. She, she ran in the '84 Derby. This is a uh, daughter. This is a daughter. Yes, that's correct. Uh, she was. Uh, I think she was coupled maybe with Life's Magic, who was another filly that Wayne mm-hmm. Lucas trained. So yeah, the two two fillies that year that Wayne Lucas ran. Uh, I think Althea may have won the Arkansas Derby. I believe so. I may be wrong about that though. We were going way back, even for me. Yeah, check this out. They, they, they don't make them like they used to, but she won the Hollywood Starlet, the Del Mar Debutante, the Del Mar Futurity against males, the Santa Susana Stakes, which was apparently a grade one back then, the Arkansas Dirty, the Los Virginis, the Hollywood Juvenile Championship, and then she was second in the Oak Leaf, the Fantasy, the Land of Lucy, and the Anokia. And this was a, uh, she was a daughter of Aladar. So this is one of the first one or two crops from, uh, Aladar's, uh, stud career. So yeah, this is, uh, she, the Philly, uh, this Philly's family's always been in high regard. So hopefully this, uh, Conquest Warrior lives up to the hype. Cause man, that was a, just go back and watch. You can find it on Twitter or wherever. Just go, go watch. It was on Saturday. It's a very, very exciting prospect. Cool. I'll take a look. All right. Uh, anything else you want, you want to talk about? You want to talk about icicles? Uh, yeah, I guess we should Saturday. mention. Yeah, we should mention that. Whatever. I didn't get to watch as much Turfway last week as I usually do, but I did get to see a couple of races. And of note, uh, Icicles, John Ennis. I should say of note, John Ennis had an incredible Turfway meet so far. Everything he's putting out there is firing. Some good horses too. He's got a, uh, and I'm not gonna be able to think of the name of the horse right now. He's got a very nice looking three year old maiden uh, who is is going to do very well uh, in the upcoming year, but. Uh, he took a horse named Icicles. He used to be trained by Ken McPeak, right? Uh, was running here last year in those maiden auction races, and somehow John Ennis got really improved the horse. He took the likely exchange the other night real easy, uh, like 15 to 1. Adam Bishitsu continues to ride very well for, for Mr. Ennis and stuff. So 
I thought that was a note. Uh, I was surprised that that horse stepped up uh, t- to win that race. That was a pretty solid little rendition. Pletcher had one coming in, uh, but horse won very easily. So, yeah, John Ennis is, John Ennis is on a roll. And we're not expecting a lot of turfway racing this week. It's bitterly cold. It's going to be bitterly cold all week. Uh, we do have some great action coming up from fairgrounds. Now, Jeff, uh, they've already drawn the fields. You had a chance to look at the overnight or the early past performances for, for Saturday. Um, I just checked the overnights. Uh, now, I haven't really dug too deep into the, the past performances yet. I know we are going to break that down a little bit here later this week, but um, – the the Lecomte did did bring the stars as as we were hoping for. It's we're gonna see the the matchup again of Nash and uh Track Phantom coming back from the gun runner. So it'll be cool to see those two and then uh Ethan Energy, who I know we have we're kinda excited about as well. He he's also in there at four to one. So um I mean it should it should be a good day, top to bottom. Um, you know, I haven't really dug into the past performances yet, but, you know, that's kind of the headliner. And, and the whole day of race should be outstanding. It always is. I'm guessing Neil Pesson has um, oh, the horse. What's the horse that runs every time they have a stake down there? The, 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 oh, my God, I can't believe I'm, he's run 15 times this year. You know what I'm talking about in the in the, uh, the mile and eighth races. Mm-hmm. Oh, help me out, Jeff. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, oh man, he's slipping my mind too. But oh, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, he's in there. Suck. Happy we'll American. <laughs> Happy American. Yes. Happy American. There you go. Yeah, I'm I, sure he's in there. I did glance at some of those uh, past performers. I should have come up with that name, but uh, just might <laughs> just might returns right and uh, yeah, it's the same, yeah. It's a, a lot of the same cast and stuff. But it should be a nice day of racing and stuff. So I think, like I said, Jeff may break that down for us a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah. So he's in the Louisiana Stakes. Uh, right. Happy American is. Yeah, yeah. And hey, it looks like Just Mike's back. Hope yeah. he can keep things rolling. He draws the rail. Draws the rail today. There's no reason he can't win again in the in the DF Kenner. I want to say he's he's in that exactly. one. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. And then of course I think Nash comes back and um, the the horse that beat him helped me out there, Jeff. Uh, uh, track Phantom. Yep. Track Phantom. So it should be it should be a fun card, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one last little fairgrounds note. You all were talking about impressive uh, maiden victories. I just have to shout out Team Foley today. They had, they had a four-year-old first-time starter named Champlin who could not have been any more impressive in a maiden special weight today at fairgrounds. It was uh, 109 and 3, I think, was the final clocking for six furlongs, which was a very fast time for what's been what's been going on there and uh beat a really well meant Chris Block first time starter and a and an Al Stahl horse who had put together two really nice performances too. So and as you all know the Foley's don't really crank up their horses for, for first time out either. I think I think Greg's maybe four or five percent on first time starters. So the that one coming out and just winning the way it did today, you know, definitely took him some time to get to the races being a four year old, but that's one that could could make some noise here coming up soon. It's impressive. Yep. And that horse's name is Champlin, so looking forward to, to more from the Foley Barn. So that's uh, that's a fun horse to follow. All right, it's now time to uh, interview our guest, our special guest of the week, and we'll get to him right now. Okay, guys, uh, when we had Tony Kale on a, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, my track announcer power rankings that's in the works. I haven't completed it yet, but I think I'm going to start working on this soon. But uh, I think our next guest is probably – Right up there at the top of my list. I think he's a fabulous track announcer. He's a, incredible at his job. Uh, I think he started calling races in his mid-20s, 
professionally at Emerald Downs, and then he went on to Golden Gate Fields, and, and now he's worked his way east. We've almost got him to Kentucky. We're working on it, but uh, he, he's already at uh, Oaklawn Park in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I'm speaking of none other than Matt Dinnerman. Matt, welcome to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. Thanks for having me on, fellas. Yeah, great to be here, and certainly, uh, certainly fun times ahead being east here. Well, right now though, you're, you're stuck, uh, you're stuck in your, your, your room, right? Cause I understand there's a lot of snow down there. Yep. I've got a condo right on the lake I'm staying at for the meeting here. And we got probably what, four or five inches of snow yesterday. So last night actually. So, uh, took a broom, got all that snow off my car, bundled up, went on a walk outside in 18 degree weather, but, um, I'm voyaging out and trying new things as a California San Diego kid used to 70 and sunny every day. Uh, that was a different experience, but it's, it's been a, it's been a fun day and it's been a fun experience being out here, seeing actual seasons, which you don't get all the time in California. So uh, Arkansas is a lot like Kentucky. I mean, we're, we're not all city people, uh, sure. either state, but uh, was it a bit of a culture shock to, to where you came from and where you are now? Well, it really hasn't been, actually. A lot of people have asked me that, and it hasn't been. One, I think, because I did my homework, so I knew what to expect. I had been into the town for interviewing for this job, so I sort of had an idea. But I would say if I had to live here year-round, it might be a little bit more of a culture shock. But um, the people have been really nice. I think the biggest change, in all honesty, is the weather. That's the, big, the biggest change, and the fact that – uh you know, living here and the gas prices are a lot lower than California. I think those are the two biggest changes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's start from the very beginning. Uh, Matt, where, where are you from and, uh, and what, uh, what got you interested in horse racing? I'm from San Diego, California. I grew up in Carmel Valley, which is the town right next to Del Mar. I actually grew up about 10 minutes from the racetrack there. And when I was about 10 or 11, my dad took me to the races and, I fell in love immediately and the bug bit me very quickly. And they say, once the bug bites you, you know, you're in and racing has been in my blood ever since. I think the race that really got me hooked, wanting to learn more. I was a little kid and candy ride won the Pacific classic. And I put $2 on him to win because he was undefeated. Julie Crone, when I was a kid, was one of my favorite riders and she was riding a horse for or riding candy ride for Gary Stevens, who was the regular rider, but he got hurt in the Arlington Million a week earlier. So Julie had the mountain. Um, not the betting, the betting was not the reason that necessarily I wanted to learn more, but I just remember it was one of the first win bets I ever had. So as a little kid, my dad put two bucks on candy ride and uh, being able to watch him win and the crowd get all excited and, that was sort of a light bulb moment to where I said, you know, as a kid, I want to learn more as I get older. So, and here we are. Why, uh, why track announcing? Well, I wanted to do television and handicapping. I really came to find an appreciation and love for being able to find these different puzzles of races and try to figure out each race really. And, I wanted a race, I wanted a job where I could be at the racetrack because I really love the live racing aspect of the industry. I loved being at the track. I just absolutely loved it. And I also wanted to be a good ambassador for the sport because I felt that I had a lot of energy for it. And I just 
was really excited every day I went to the races and I wanted something where I could make the experience better for other people. So when I was a little kid, I would ask my dad a lot, how does the announcer know the names and how does the announcer know the lengths between horses and all this? And when I was little, I, I wasn't really thinking about doing it. And then eventually what happened was, as I got a little older, I think it was always in there, but I said, you know what, this is maybe something I want to try. So, um, you know, got involved working for John Sadler as a hot walker. And then when I was working in the press box, I worked a couple years there under Dan Smith and Mac McBride. And that's where I actually started practicing race calls. Okay. Do you remember the first, uh, the first race you ever called you at a racetrack on a microphone or just in general? On a, well, yeah, both. Let's just answer both uh, in general or, 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 uh, at the racetrack. On well, profession. Ha- yeah, I mean, at, I don't know the exact race, the first one I called at a racetrack just practicing, but it had to be at Del Mar. It was early in the meet of the first, the first, or I think it was the first year I was in the press box. It, it must have been a race, um, the first week. You know, because they had these empty booths in the press box where some of the writers would go in and work. And basically they had a couple empty ones all the time. So I would go in these empty booths and I would take my recorder and I'd take my binoculars and practice calling the race. But the first race I ever called over a microphone was at Emerald Downs. It was a tryout to get that job. I sent in my tapes of my practice calls and the management at Emerald really liked my work, or at least they thought. I was an interesting candidate, so they had me come up. They flew me up there the next morning after they contacted me saying they were interested in at least learning a little more about me, and I called my first race over a microphone, I think, in 2015, the day before Mother's Day, and a horse named Coach Royal won the race. It was a two-turn race. Leslie Mowing rode for trainer Jeff Metz, and uh, that was sort of the first one of many thousands now talking to you guys. How do you handle pressure or stress, or do you even feel that? Oh, you definitely feel stress and pressure, especially with these big races. But one thing that's interesting is calling the Long Acres Mile was a big deal at Emerald. Calling the San Francisco Mile, the El Camino Real Derby at Golden Gate was a big deal. I just called the Smarty Jones here with Catching Freedom. And even though, you know, there's there's different numbers with regards to betting, there's different amounts of people on track, different graded stake statuses or no graded stake statuses. All these things are all different, but the pressure for me feels the same every time. Um, so really the key is just being able to understand and almost accept that, you know what, this pressure is part of the job. It's going to happen. And if you don't feel a little pressure, a little nerves, then sometimes maybe that's not necessarily a good thing. Maybe you got to rethink if you really want to be doing this because you care. I see it as just you want to do a good job and you're also naturally excited to watch a good race and you're the one describing the action. So you just make sure that, you know, those nerves come and you have to keep them in check a little bit. But once the race starts, the nerves start to go away because you're just focused on the job and doing a good job. So even though it's there, you just learn to really accept it and sometimes even laugh a little bit and say, you know what, we're just calling a horse race. We're just having a good time. So um, that's sort of how I've dealt with it. And I think over time announcers, we get better at it and we get better at learning and understanding how we feel before these big races and dealing with that type of pressure. 
how long uh, or how much thought did you put into uh, uh, the uh, the job offer to come to Hot Springs? Well, I thought about it for quite a little while. I mean, when I was offered the job, when the, I was told, you know, hey, we'd like you to be our next announcer, I was all in already at that point. It was, I think, the thought process of, was the the most thought came: do I apply for the job or not? Because obviously, Golden Gate, um, you know, I I was in my home state. They were treating me well. I liked it. Um, it was a year-round gig. I got a really good package and it was just a really good gig to be a part of. So once Golden Gate, the announcement was made that Golden Gate would be closing in the near future, I think the Oaklawn job really became um, very much you have to go about and, and apply for it. And that was really the, the, the game changer. And but once I had interviewed for this job, I knew if I if they could offer me this if they offer me this position, then it's not something I can turn down. It's just an amazing opportunity, and I feel very lucky that I'm here. Do you get or did you get a, a kind of a sense of uh, how important this job is to uh, the locals in Hot Springs? I mean, I just I was searching your name early, and I found a lot of came across a lot of newspaper articles that, you know, announcing that you were going to be the new track announcer. And uh, I know there's some big shoes to fill at Oakland. That, uh, Chick Anderson used to be a track announcer there. Terry Wallace was there when I first started, started following racing. Uh, I think he was one of the, one of the, the greats. Of course, Vic Stoffer and, and, and now you're in that role. Did, did you ever sense that uh, this is a big deal in Hot Springs? Absolutely. I mean, I knew that I knew that the town was very invested in racing and I know that the whole racing community across the country is invested in Oakland very much. So everybody watches Oakland or at the very least, everybody's watching the very, very big races, but you get a very large viewership. And obviously it's a top track, not only during the winter season, but really throughout the whole season, you, you compare tracks and you say Oakland just has a fantastic racing product all the way around. So being able to call it a track at that level and, Again, like you referenced, being able to look and see who's called here, it's really an honor to be able to be the next person on board. But at the same time, you also mentioned filling big shoes. And the key there is going to a place, because I've had to deal with it before. When I went to Emerald, Robert Geller, he was like the Trevor Denman of Washington State or the Tom Durkin of Washington State. He was a legend at Emerald. And obviously there have been a lot of really – good accomplished callers that have gone through the golden gate announcers booth and have gone on to do really big things. So I had experience in that regard, but the key is really just to say, you know what? I can't be somebody else. I I can't be Vic. I can't be Terry Wallace. I can't be Chick Anderson. I can't be anybody but myself. So you go in and you do the real, the best you can and you hope that people enjoy the work and you know that, not everybody's going to, and you hope that most people do, and you just go in there and you do the very best you can. So that's sort of what I've stuck with, just going there and being myself and doing the best I can do. All right, let's talk about Hot Springs. Now, I got to go mm-hmm. to Hot Springs in, I think, 22, in the spring of 22, for about two days. I didn't get to really do the whole Hot Springs thing. But what do you think about the place? It's pretty cool with the, the bathhouses and the, and the big hotel. And I didn't realize that, that 
all the baseball players used to go down there back in yeah. in the old days. What what? How cool is this is this little town? It's a really neat place. It feels like you're going back in time in a way. Everything's right, really everything you need's right on the main road there, Central Avenue. Um, downtown is a lot of really good food places, so that's a fun destination right away, and that's where a lot of the bathhouses are. And I haven't been to one, but I'm sure at some point I will. Um, it, they're spooky. Man. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. And the hotel's a little spooky too. Arlington. Oh, yeah, but my girlfriend demanded that I pay for her to get a bath in one of these bathhouses. And it's, mm-hmm. we went in, in, in a couple of them. And it's, it's, it's a little freaky. It's just, it's, it's, uh, they're old. <laughs> yeah. That's all I can yeah. say. They're old. They're beautiful, but they're little. They're, there was one that, that you can get, do a free tour of. And it's, it's like going into a haunted house, man. Looks, uh, but they're, they're, they're very beautiful on the outside and, uh, and they're very popular because I mean, they we had to wait in line to, to get her into one of those baths. So that, that's, that, it's interesting to say the least. Sure. And again, it's like going back in time. You know, it's an old school type of town. You know, there's a lot of history here. A lot of mob activity was actually here back in the day. And Al Capone, he, his, he had a speakeasy here. I think that's actually a bar. Now it's a legit bar. I don't know what it's called, but there's just a lot of history here. So it's a very neat town. It's a close-knit community. You can tell, I mean, comparing it to California versus here, it's a lot more simple living, which I don't mind at all. I enjoy it. I think it's really neat to just sort of slow down the pace of your life from California and come here and um, go to good restaurants and meet good people. The people are extremely friendly and hospitable and nice here. And I live 15 yards. I'm probably sitting in my living room 20 yards away from water. I'm living right on the lake here. So I know in the spring and the summer it gets really, um, re- really nice and, and warm and people like fishing and they, you know, when the weather gets good, they like hiking too. There's a lot of nature. I'm a jet ski guy. I like driving jet skis if I can get one. So I'll be on the lake, I'm sure, in March or April or even early May before the meet ends on the jet ski. So, um, but I've gone to a lot of really good food places here. I've met a lot of really nice people and people are so pro racing here. They just love it. They love racing. They love Oaklawn. Generations of families have come to Oaklawn. So, so a lot of people probably grow up on racing and they just continue to bring their kids. And it's just a really neat thing, especially given the state of the industry and where we're at. I think to be able to come to a place like this is really, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's great to see. Real quick before I, I turn it over to my, my friends here. Uh, if there's a pronunciation you come across on a horse and you might struggle with it, will you just offer your best estimated guess or you contact an owner or a trainer or anything like that, or you, you text somebody for help or anything like that. What, what, what do you do on like the reason that popped in my mind, there was a horse that ran Saturday named cheese Whiz, but it was spelled cheese was spelled C H E Z. And what my first uh, pass through, and I don't know why I was thinking this. I, I was thinking Shay Whiz, like Shay is in some type of French word. The way it's spelled, but you called it cheese whiz, and I think you were right. Is it, what 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 process do you go through with with, with difficult names? 
Well, and that one, actually, I still don't know if that's right. So we're trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> a lot of times in that situation, I wasn't able to do it. I tried, but I'll go on Google um, and look up and see if I can find the pronunciation for certain words, certain names that I'm giving. Um, other times I will call the owner or the trainer, have someone that knows them call them and say, hey, you know, how do you pronounce this name? And I've encountered times where the trainer goes, I have no clue. We just call him this or <laughs> whatever. So you roll with it. And that's the thing too. There are times where maybe the owner wants you to call the horse a certain way, even if maybe it's not spelled that way or, and, and there's a reason for that. Maybe they couldn't name the horse exactly how they wanted to spell it because there was another horse that was named that. So they changed the spelling. So those things, I, I, I think it's really important. It's part of the experience if you're a horse owner and part of the connections of that horse of getting it right. So I want to make sure as an announcer that I could do that. So usually, you know, you go on Google. I have people I ask. I can call anybody even if I can't find the owner and the trainer on Google. And, you know, I can call my dad or my mom if I wanted to and say, hey, do you know how to say this? So um, I, I like those corrections when I can get pronunciations corrected for me and uh, I have a lot of avenues it's a lot easier now I'm sure in 2023 than it was way back in the day when they didn't have internet or computers or cell phones and all that stuff all right I'm going to turn this over to uh, Jeff Riggs he's going he's got some questions for you and then uh, uh, when everybody's had a chance just uh, swing it back to me go ahead Jeff absolutely appreciate it and yeah thanks for thanks for joining us tonight Matt as a you know, a fellow early 90s baby. I like seeing us, uh, you know, having success in the industry. So I'm a big fan of your work. You know, I followed you from from Emerald to Golden Gate to here. So um, I guess what, my first question I wanted to ask is what are the, the major differences between the three tracks you've worked at and uh, what are kind of pros and cons? That's a good question, Jeff. Um, going to Emerald, we'll start with Emerald because I've worked at Emerald, I've worked at Golden Gate, and I've worked at Oakland. Um, Emerald Downs, when I was there, they were very big on the marketing and they were very big on the on-track experience and they had all sorts of different things. They had, I rode a camel there actually. I had a camel racing. I rode, I rode cam, a camel. <laughs> I mean, they had all these different races of animals and I, recently they've gotten like grandparents races. I mean, it's gotten to where they have all sorts of different stuff, but, um, big on track presence at Emerald. And that was really a big help when calling the races. And I, I would say, obviously, Emerald has probably the cheapest horses out of any of the three tracks I've called at when you look at the bottom barrel, but it sure didn't feel like that because it was a small community. The people in Washington were very proud of their racing at Emerald. They really were. And, um, it was like, a little boutique meet. It was their five months of racing in Washington. And to them, that was really special. And it felt like a yeah. boutique meet and it was. Um, and I think that going to Emerald, I learned a lot about racetrack management there. And, and because it was, it was a community where everybody was sort of a part of the action. 
you know, we would go to marketing meetings and have discussions and ideas and they were very open to trying new marketing tactics. So for that, I was very That's impressed cool. with how they went about doing that. When I got to Golden Gate, it was, it was very different from Emerald. The, the on track presence, unless it was dollar days, wasn't quite to where Emerald was. Um, the racing in terms of quality was a little bit better. Um, but it, it wasn't really a boutique meeting. It didn't feel like because it was nine and a half months of running and then they ran at the fairs. So, um, having at, to be at a track where it was sort of a year round type of deal, the, the feel was definitely a little bit different. But, um, one thing about Golden Gate was I think the trainers were pretty tight knit. Um, the jockeys, the jockeys everywhere I've been have been tight knit. They're their own little community, but, um, you know, you'd see trainers at, at a Golden Gate, you know, they'd be at the bar down there all day and then they'd go out to dinner and, and they were very open to having, uh, you know, anybody a part of the community who wanted to be a part of that family to, to be a part of that family. And, um, you know, obviously I learned a little more about corporate racetrack ownership and learning about how a racetrack that's owned or owners that own multiple racetracks, how they run their racetracks and, and differences and seeing the differences between how they did things at San Anita versus Golden Gate. So all that was very, uh, very interesting. And it was a good learning experience while I was able to call horses that were a little bit better quality than Golden Gate. And, um, being able to call synthetic, there were a lot of really exciting races. I really enjoyed calling synthetic and turf there at Golden Gate. I thought the races were really competitive, a lot more competitive than people yeah. give them credit for, you know, because of the smaller field sizes at Golden Gate. People talk about that and reference it, but um, I thought that the races, sometimes you'd see six, seven horse fields where five or six of them all had a shot. And it, it, it looked that way down the lane at the 16th pole and they were all bunching up and coming to Oakland. I mean, I, I'm just getting started here. So I still have a ways to go until I have the full year experience here, one season in and I'll learn a lot more, but, um, big fields, high class horses, good riders. You know, I'm calling. Horses from Steve Asperson and Brad Cox, D. Wayne Lucas, and and that's been a real treat. Um, and so I've really fallen in love with Oakland very quickly, though. And I'm excited to see once the weather gets a little better. I hear that it's really going to start amping up with regards to um, on track attendance. Attendance, but the racing yeah. <laughs> product is as good as anywhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. I know we've touched a little bit on the weather already, but did you really know what you're getting into going to an Oakland winter from West Coast? Well, my mom helped me with that. That's what good moms okay. do, right? They, they they take you out to the to, to Macy's or wherever, and you, you get your warm clothes. And I was picking out all these warm jackets and hoodies. I think that was when it was like, oh, boy, I'm not – I'm not in Kansas anymore, Toto. We're not, we're not staying <laughs> right. home. So, um, I was ready for it. I was sort of excited because I'm still Californian. I think the last time I saw snow, I was about three years old on a trip and I didn't even see it snowing. So, you know, maybe I'll come <laughs> yeah. with, like snow more down the road, but for me, it's like it's snowing and I'm pumped. I'm like, I want to get out there and throw some snowballs. <laughs> That's how I it feel. Is, it is cool. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. That was going to be my next question is if you'd ever seen snow before. And it sounds like it's been a long time. So yeah, that, I mean, that is exciting and especially being on the lake. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's beautiful out there. Oh, it's lovely. It's like a little white Christmas. It's a late white Christmas. You look out and it's just white and, 
and, and quiet. It's very tranquil on the lake because you actually have a lot of people who have summer places on the lake. So it's not like all of the houses and condos are occupied. So um, it's very quiet and peaceful. And there weren't a lot of people out today, obviously, but I, I just decided to take a walk. And, you know, what does it feel like to be with snow on the ground and 20 degrees, what's that like? I don't know. I've never experienced it until today. So I bundled up and decided to just walk around with my snowshoes and jacket and bundled up. And, you know, that, that's another thing is the experience here of being able to deal with seasons and all that stuff. It's, it's new for me. Everything's new. So I'm definitely in that honeymoon stage, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah, that's awesome. Here's the new adventures for sure. Sure. Uh, you know, circling back around to your race calls a little bit, one thing I really enjoy about your calls is that they have like a little bit of a conversational feel almost. It's it's almost mm-hmm. like it's a super f- professional version of describing a race to a buddy who's in the other room. And like all of us are the buddy in the other room. Is that something that you purposely put effort into or is that just your natural style? I think that's my natural style, and that's a huge compliment. I, I thank you, and I really appreciate that, because that is actually my goal, is it, exactly how you said it. And I couldn't say it any better, which is, you know, you're describing the race. I'm just, I'm trying to describe the race like if I was standing by the rail and my buddy knew nothing about horse racing, and we bet a horse together, and he was saying, well, how's how's our horse look? And I'm describing it to him. And it's the same thing going on air when I give the analysis. It's the same thing. I mean, I I don't see myself as a tout. I don't see myself as knowing more than anybody else. I'm just the one describing the action, and um, I want it to feel personable, and I want it to feel like people are listening and they're getting good information. But um, I, I think that that's just my natural style, and that's my personality. Right. That's that's awesome. I mean, I think that's perfect because everybody's always talking about trying to, you know, bridge the gap between, you know, experienced race horse, you know, horse racing fans and then people who are just out at the track for a day. And, you know, how do you kind of capture those people and turn them into horse racing fans and grow the game and everything? I think that that calling races in the way that you do really helps with that. So I definitely appreciate it. And you're definitely knocking it out of the park there in my book for sure. But, uh, yeah, before I uh, toss you over to Alan, I did have one more thing I wanted to ask you. Is it true that you still use the first pair of binoculars that your aunt gave you when you were young, when you call that is, Yeah, that's true. Um, my uncle and aunt, they got me these binoculars that I'm still using because they knew I wanted to call races. And when it was holiday season, I asked for a pair of binoculars, and there they were under the tree. And I've used them ever since. I use them to practice calling races in the press box. Emerald Golden Gate here. I still got them and they're special. They're very special. And I don't plan on ever replacing them because of that, really. That's very cool. <laughs> I think that's cool. That's true. I read that and I was like, I got to ask him about that because that's just a cool story. All sure. right. Well, I, I appreciate it, Matt. I'll, uh, I'll toss it over to Alan. I know he has some questions for you as well. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, that's awesome, my man. I appreciate it. Hey, Matt, I'm sitting here thinking, before I go into question mode, I've got an observation as, as I'm thinking and we're sitting here talking. Two observations come to mind. One, we've done 168 of these pods. I think we've had four announcers on. And as I'm sitting here rehashing it in my brain, there's a common thread with all of them. There's you, who's called Emerald and Golden Gate, correct? Should there is uh, Bill Downs, who's now at Emerald, am I not mistaken, right? 
He's actually at Golden Gate. He's, He's over there Gate. filling things out. I mean, uh, finishing it out. Yeah. And then there is we have saw Tony Kayla who came from Tony Kayla came from Golden Gate. Is that correct as well? He, yes. He well he called in the Bay Area a number of the years Bay. ago before I think that was right before Michael Rona took over. Mm-hmm. And then Jason um, Beam, who's from is from the West Coast, right? And he called it Portland Meadows and stuff, and he talks very. Uh, lovingly of Emerald Downs and stuff too. So I've never really put those two together. Maybe we need more East Coast guys on here. What, I wonder why that is the case. Um, yeah, interesting. That's, interesting. that's very interesting. It, it, sort of the common theme is Washington and California, right? Yeah. It is, the other observation that comes to mind with me is like, uh, did you ever watch the show Ozark? When he's out there I, West I did not, but I've definitely. People have talked about that show and how it was filmed somewhere out here in Arkansas, not in Hot Springs, but it, it's based in Arkansas, I believe. Yeah, it was, I think it's like Missouri, but the Ozarks and stuff, or whatever. I was like, that could give you a, if they're watching that show, that might want to keep you away from that area. But I think that's just kind of fictitious. But uh, now that you're there, maybe I'll check it out. It's Jason Bateman. I may um, have no ch- choice but to check it out myself because I've never watched it. So. And you're stuck inside right now, too, so it's a good time to get it going. Exactly. I'm on I'm on House of Cards right now. I'm watching that show, but maybe after I'm done with that, I'll go to Ozark. You got it. Um, a couple things real quick, race call uh, centric, as I'm thinking about it. Number one, and I don't know if this was a case at Golden Gate or the case at Emerald, but you've got that little tricky scenario that happens at Oakland that happens at Keeneland with that short stretch, right? That's if I was a, if I was a race car, that'd be a, just a pain in the ass to me because I'm always afraid I would forget her. Even though you know it going in, you announce it going in, it's easy to get lost, right? Is that ever, does that worry you at all with the, the two different finish lines? Believe it or not, it only worried me the first time. The first really? time I wanted to make sure, you know, I, I got it right. And it says in the program, too, I have my program with me if I need to take a quick peek, if I forget a horse. It'll say there, you know, it starts and ends at the 16th pole. Um, but after that, believe it or not, it's been very easy. And luckily, there's this TV. I, there's this TV on my left. I've got a few TVs that show the our track feed and whatever else I want to put on. And then there's a fourth TV in the room next to mine. But it's it's in the room next to mine. But it's looking towards me, and it's the camera of the 16th pole because I'm not on the 16th pole calling the races. So I can actually look on that TV as they're approaching the line and get a really good view of who's finishing and, you know, if there's a photo finish. Um, so that makes my life a lot easier with that television there. As they come to the wire, I can take my binoculars off and then just immediately go to that TV. So I think, if anything, I would have been more concerned with, hey, if there's a photo or I'm on such a weird angle here, would I even want to try to call a photo? I think that would be more of a concern than actually remembering, oh, it ends and starts – starts and ends at the 16th pole. And I um, I remind the fans during the race once, you know, usually around the far turn or turning from home and then in the post parade as well, sometimes even right before the start. Not only does that remind the fans, but it also reminds me, you know, hey, yeah. this race starts and ends at the 16th pole. So Nice little reinforcement there that works for both sides of that equation, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that's another reason why I uh, call the horses loading. I think for one each horse going in, people know how far the loading process is in because people are making bets last minute. But also, it's a good way to go over the horses one last time, you know, just to practice that memorization. So, 
Um, works for everybody, I guess, Alan. Yeah, it, it's always good to hear these announcers, tricks of the trade, cheat sheets, however you want to look at it. And yeah. at, talking to Tony for a, <clears throat> I think we've had Tony on a couple of times. Something very interesting to me that he he led on to us or whatever. It's like when we when we get this notion of announcers and you, you think about the, the layout of their booth, is it too high, is it too low, all these different things. Those are things I think about like an announcer has to deal with. But something Tony mentioned, and it probably applies to you as well, is Tony came into a whole new circuit, just like you're coming to a whole new circuit. Yeah. So we all, we, we, how do they identify? They identify the jockey silks, identify the saddle cloths. Tony was explaining to us that like he's got to get used to new owner silks, right? Things, silks that he's not accustomed to. Right. Uh, who's wearing a shadow roll? Who's wearing the certain color blinkers? Has that, has that transition been okay or is that, is that a, a continuous learning process to really know who's racing where? Well, I think you, I think it's both, to be honest, Alan. I think it is a learning process, but has it gone okay? Yeah, it's gone okay. And I, you know, I'm, I don't know if Tony's talked about this, but I'm sure he would agree. Um, when it comes to memorizing horses and silks and getting the names right, it, there's no real school for announcing partially because at some point with regards to memorizing, everybody has their own way of doing it. And what may work for one person may not necessarily work for somebody else. And it's, that's part of when you, you know, are first starting out, you learn, you try different things. There's trial and error as to see, okay, what works best for me trying to memorize these horses or these silks that really are brand new to me. Um, so that's the key is just being able to trust your process and understanding this works for me. It's worked in the past and you're going to go in there with confidence knowing that you're going to do a good job. A lot of it is as mental as anything else, making sure you, you, you are confident in yourself and you're going to do a good job. So, um, paying attention, it's very important you pay attention. It's very important that you don't get distracted, that you give yourself enough time to memorize the horses, but it's gone well. And I think, like you said, it is definitely a, a process and it's something that, um, it takes time and especially like I was looking at Equibase and I think there were like three pages of owner's silks, two or three pages of owner's silks at Golden Gate here. Last season, there were 11 pages of ownership silks. So that tells you how many more different types of silks I have to see. So it's it's an adjustment for sure. But you take it one race at a time and, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of like I said, you just you just focus on your process. I, I got to think, though, before I move on here, I, I got to think those 12 horse fields full of state breads. State bread mains got to be a little tricky, doesn't it? They are, yes. I mean, I would say if you're memorizing new fields, the, the trickiest part or the trickiest types of races are probably the maiden horses that maybe just random horses that you've never seen before, whether they're first time starters or you're going into a new track and you see all these random ownership groups that maybe have one or two archibreds, for example, that you, you got to memorize those silks. I mean, for example, Winchell Thoroughbreds. If you see a horse with Winchell Thoroughbreds is the owner. We all know in racing, mm-hmm. if you follow it long enough, what those silks look like. If you can picture American Pharaoh's silks, you know, anytime you see that ownership group silks, you're going to know what the silks are going to be like. But if they're a bunch of random owners with silks that, you know, random colors, and you, you have to take time to memorize those and make sure you get it right. And that takes longer than memorizing a six horse field, you know, naturally. So 
Of course, of course. Uh, let me tell you, who, who wants it next? Brandon, Cece, who's up? Hey, let's get things back to center here. I got some important questions I need to ask you, Matt. Cool. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had Nancy Holthus uh, join us, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a fun conversation. Uh, she uh, recommended a restaurant in Hot Springs. And I'm just curious, have you tried the Purple Cow yet? I pull. I think I tried the purple cow. I'm just looking to make sure. I, I've tried a lot of places here. Um, purple cow. I, I have tried the, I have tried the purple cow and it's very good. It's a very good place. See, yeah. I'd, I'd never heard the term adult milkshake before until we had Nancy on that night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And we it's a good it. milkshake. Let me tell you, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I remember it was really good. I just, it crossed my mind, but yeah, I, I we we tried it when I was in Hot Springs as well. So uh, now let's talk about coming up. Uh, the the three year old picture is getting ready to unfold, and we've got a really nice uh, stakes race at the fairgrounds, the little comp on Saturday. But then the following week is the Southwest Stakes at Oakland, eight hundred thousand dollar race, and. Uh, I can't really find a list of probables. Matt, do you have any idea what's uh, what's going in the Southwest? Well, it's funny because I was actually looking at the nominations. They came out today. There's 60 of them. Um, most of the vast majority of these horses will not run in that race. So, I mean, I can't speak for our racing secretary or our racing office, but we got this level of nominations for the Southwest and we got uh, or I'm sorry, the Smarty Jones, and we got nine horses. So I'd imagine it'd be a good, strong field and a solid field, but I don't think it would be like a race where we split, which we have split derby preps here at Oakland in the past. I know that there are a few horses that are gearing towards this race. Jess Steele ran second in the Smarty Jones for D. Wayne Lucas. He won a one-turn stake at Churchill late last year. He's expected to enter in the Southwest. Otto the Conqueror, he won the Springboard Mile for Steve Asmussen. He is expected to enter into the Southwest. And also Liberal Arts, we haven't seen him since he won, I believe, the Kentucky Jockey uh, Cup uh, at Churchill Downs. He is going to be making his 2023 debut in the Southwest. Brad Cox will surely have a horse or two. And Steve Asmussen, he may enter another one in there. Um, I'm sure Ken McPeak, he's nominated quite a few. He'll have a horse in there. Uh, so Bob Baffert nominated for, we're, we're going to see him with a horse in there. I'm sure. Um, I, I'd imagine he would send one. He likes to run here in these big money, big derby preps at Oakland. So, um, I'm expecting, you know, probably nine to 10 horses, if not maybe a little bigger. And it should be a really, really competitive, good race. Fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Uh, it. Is there any buzz for any other races? Uh, I know there's a, a big slate of skate, uh, stakes on the schedule of uh, this meet. Uh, have you heard of anything else that's coming to coming to Oakland possibly that uh, we, we need to pay attention to? Well, I know that on that same day, there's three other stakes races. We've got the Martha Washington, which is a, a race for a three-year-old filly. So uh, maybe Kentucky Oaks horses down the road, maybe fantasy horses down the road. One interesting runner that I hear 
is very probable to run that day in the American Beauty. It's a Philly and Mary Sprint is Alva Star for Brett Brinkman. And we haven't seen Alva Star since she ran second at Keeneland and she ran in the Raven Run and lost to uh, Vava, I think, in the Raven Run. So Alva Star is going to be making her 2024 debut in the American Beauty. So I think a lot of people, if they're interested in the Philly and Mare Sprint Division, she's going to be a force this year. And, um, you know, obviously we have a very strong stake schedule here at Oakland. Big money, really high-class horses running. So, um, you know, down the road we're going to have the Rebel. That's obviously going to be not only a big race, but it's going to be a big day on Rebel Day. Uh, the Arkansas Derby's on March 30th this year. It's one week earlier than usual. And we will have the Oakland Handicap and the Apple Blossom in April. So those are some of our bigger races. Is it a problem you have to work on Derby Day, Kentucky Derby Day now? Oh, no. I've worked on Derby Day every year for the last seven, eight years. Okay. So I actually enjoy it. I mean, I get to call races and be at the track and watch our own horses run and then enjoy all the big races from Kentucky. So I, I have a lot of fun. Have you ever been to Kentucky? I've been to Kentucky once. Uh, I went to Keeneland. I got a tour from a good friend of mine of Churchill, but they were not running. Got to go to Lexington, and uh, while I was at Keeneland and on an off day, I went to Old Friends. I went to Gainesway and met Tappet. I went to Spendthrift and met Into Mischief, and Golden Sense was there. And uh, even, I think it was Malibu Moon, when he was still around, he was there, if I remember correctly. So... I've been to Kentucky and, and Lexington really was, was, I was amazed at Lexington, how beautiful it is. We thank you that for uh, coming on and joining us and taking some time out of your schedule to, uh, to spend time with us. Uh, Matt, we think you're a wonderful race caller. We're looking forward to the rest of this Oakland meet. Uh, you do a fantastic job and we, we certainly, uh, appreciate you, uh, uh, being with us on the Auxiliary Gate podcast. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's been great meeting you and chatting with you. And, you know, I'll, I'll be around. I would love to chat with you again sometime. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks, thank you, Matt. Matt. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Okay, that was Matt Dinnerman. I'm not blowing smoke. I think he's one of the best uh, track announcers in the country. I think he'll, uh, years from now, he'll go down as one of the, one of the greatest of all time. One of the best interviews, too. He's, ex- he's extremely nice, extremely affable, right? Uh, didn't you didn't you get get that from Matt? I mean, a genuinely nice guy. Uh, it, it really Absolutely. came across. Yeah, didn't you think so, Jeff? Yeah, just very likable and very down to earth. And uh, you know, he just he he has the same kind of ideas about the game as we do. And um, yeah, I just really enjoyed talking to him. Yeah, he really he's really, very impressive. I need I need to watch more Oakland simply from that. Uh, I'll tell you that. Was Brandon here? Did I? He kind of slipped in like a thief in the night, and then he's gone. Yeah, he comes in unannounced and stuff, right? He's kind of like a cat burglar, and in these podcasts, we don't know when he's showing up. He just kind of, kind of shows up like mole. <laughs> he slipped back out the door again on us too. Yeah, it's you know, folks, we never know. We never know one way or another. It's we welcome it though. Yeah, we welcome the chaos. Yeah. All right, two two more points. We left out. Uh, there's a uh, Kentucky Derby prep at Turfway on Saturday. Hopefully, they'll get it in. It's the Leonidas Stakes. Now, I think did Leonidas win a Kentucky Derby? Maybe. 
I don't recall what I, I Caitlin talks about this a little bit and I and I cannot remember. Um but I know Red Strike won't rain in Leonidas. So okay. I, I do know that. Uh well, ran third or fourth. There's a field of eleven. Looks like Awesome Road is entered, but he's also cross entered in the LeCompte at Fairgrounds. Mm. So not sure where he's gonna go. He's also nominated, I think, to the uh, Southwest next week as well. And then Vote No is entered, and they, he's coming. That's a short turnaround. Yeah, Vote that's no. he, he stretching the, out. Yeah, he, he won the preview, but he was very impressive winning the preview. And then nine others in there as well. But uh, And then the last thing we've talked about, of course, it's uh, Joe Christofek's birthday. Happy uh, birthday, Joe. Yeah, this is. Right, happy birthday, Joe K. Yeah, we're recording this on a Monday, so if, uh, if you're listening, happy birthday to you, pal. And uh, anything else? Uh, that's it for me. Bedtime for this old man. All right. What about you, Jeff? Um, it, it is looking like Alan may not have to eat the cat food. It is 16 <laughs> to 9 Buccaneers oh. currently over the Eagles. So we'll see if they if they can uh, form a comeback. It looks like so they just scored. So it's going to be 16 to 10. But Bucks are getting the ball back just before halftime. Hopefully, hopefully the Eagles can pull this off because I'm looking forward to the. Uh, Alan Schneider cat food challenge. Does anybody really at least got to keep the sweat going, you know? Does anybody really think the Eagles are going to make a run and beat the Ravens? And, well, you know, but, not just the Ravens, the 49ers, the way the Texans have looked. But I'm not going to say it, they couldn't happen. Alan's <laughs> promised to eat. Alan's promised to eat a can of cat food, and we're going to live stream it on YouTube if the Philadelphia Eagles win the Super Bowl. And we're almost there. We're about four games away. Can I so, eat ranch dressing or something to make it go down easier if it happens? Oh. Yeah, you can garnish it however you'd like, Alan. I'm not even crazy about cats, let alone cat food. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> man of my word, right? Man of my word. Go Bucks. All right, guys, that's all for now. So on behalf of our guest, Matt Dinnerman, the track announcer at Oakland Park, Brandon Jaggers, who's disappeared into the night, Alan Schneider, Jeff Riggs, cast of thousands, and all of you at home, this is CC Broadus reminding you in the words of our spiritual leader, Jerry Romans, we're not happy until you're not happy. <laughs>